Welcome to Season 10 of American Political History, the North American Contest, the Campaign of 1758. By July 1758, General Abercrombie's expedition was approaching Ticonderoga and the French fort of Col Rillion. General Abercrombie decided that his strategy would be one of a frontal assault, figuring that his 12,000 men would simply overwhelm the 3,500-man French garrison. The attack began at 12.30. An English soldier would describe the battle as this. They killed our men so fast that we could not make it to the breastwork of the fort. We got behind trees, logs, and stumps to cover ourselves as we could. The ground was strewn with dead and dying. Every moment I could hear a man screaming and see him dying all around me. Once in a while, the enemy would cease firing for a minute or two to have the smoke clear. In one of those pauses, I sprang from my perilous position and found another hideout behind pine logs with several of my comrades who had already taken shelter. One of the men would raise his head around the tree, and a musket ball would strike him in the forehead. I laid there until near sunset when I crept off in the darkness, leaving our dead and wounded on the battlefield. General Abercrombie, who was positioned in his tent two miles away, could not witness the battlefield and sent wave after wave of his men against the fort. 2,000 men would die on that battlefield. General Abercrombie then ordered some of his men to march down to their landing spot from their canoes. He gave no explanation, so rumors spread that the French must be attacking them and attempting to cut them off. Many militia simply took to their boats and sailed home, avoiding capture by the supposed incoming French army. By the morning of July 9th, the largest English army assembled in North America was rowing in panic, fleeing from a French army one quarter of its size. The French soldiers at Fort Colerion saw this victory as deliverance by God and would sing out, To whom it belongs this victory? Commander? Soldier? Behold, God's sign of only he himself has triumphed here. General Amherst's expedition arrived at Cape Breton Island in June. By the middle of July, they were underway of their siege of Fort Louisburg. Fort Louisburg may have been a medium-sized fortress for European standards, but it was the largest fortress by far in North America, and now had a garrison of 6,000 men, and in its harbors were 11 French warships. And this was all protected by the fortress's cannons, which now could sweep in all directions. But a large fortress was weak to a siege. As the trenches began to be slowly built and tightened, cutting it off from the outside world, General Amherst was running a proper, systematic siege of Fort Louisburg. On July 19th, English cannons were finally in position to begin firing on the fort. By the 21st, a lucky cannonball blew up one of the powder magazines of a French warship, damaging the neighboring ships. By July 22nd, one of the fortress's bastions was burned down. On the 25th, during the night, French soldiers set fire to the remaining warships to prevent their capture. By the 26th, enough English cannons were now in protected positions to rain down 1,000 cannonballs on the fort in a single day. This systematic attrition devastated the French garrison. By the 26th, more than one-third of the French garrison was now killed or injured. The warships had all been destroyed and their supplies were running out. The French commandant raised the right flag of surrender to discuss terms of capitulation with General Amherst, 
According to typical European etiquette, the French commander had done everything possible and endured enough of the siege to grant him and his men surrender with honors. The French fully expected to be allowed to return home with their possessions on terms of parole. But General Amherst and his men had the massacre of Fort William Henry on their mind. Their first act was to take the dead native and French soldiers and systematically scalp them as a sign of revenge. Then, General Amherst replied to the French commandant that he would get no terms which would grant them honors of surrendering. Also, the French population, in what would become known as Prince Edward Island, would be deported back to France. The French commandant was responsible for the well-being of those 8,000 men, women, and children. With little choice and having the noose of a professional siege around their neck, the French commandant agreed to these humiliating terms of surrender. Lieutenant Colonel Bradstreet led the expedition which would attack Fort Frontenac. His first move was to get the Iroquois, who he knew were feeding the French intelligence, to perpetuate fake movements of his expedition. He had even told his own men that they were to go to the Mohawk Valley to reestablish the fort abandoned by General Webb in 1756. When the expedition reached the site of the ruined fort, it immediately changed plans from rebuilding it to making a hasty attack on Fort Frontenac. On August 25th, Bradstreet's expedition of 3,100 men reached the outskirts of Fort Frontenac on Lake Ontario. Without time or supplies, they could not siege Fort Frontenac. Instead, on the night of the 26th, they would sneak their cannons in position on a nearby rise. And then, with the dawn light of the 17th, they opened fire on the fort. This was so striking that before 8 o'clock in the morning, the 63-year-old French commandant would raise the right flag of truce. General Bradstreet would briskly dictate the terms of surrender to the French commandant. The French garrison would keep their possessions. They would be prisoners of war, and they would be taken back to Albany, so they could be exchanged for an equal number of English prisoners at Montreal. By 9 a.m., the English were in control of the fort and Bradstreet would then witness the state of the French armies in North America. The French had put up such little defense because the whole garrison consisted of 110 men who had no chance to operate the fort's 60 cannons. But the fort's warehouses were stocked with an incredible amount of supplies. Fort Frontenac served as the French's primary war depot in North America. It was estimated afterwards that the spoils of this victory were somewhere around 35,000 pounds sterling. And after the full cooperation of the French troops, Lieutenant Bradstreet would release all of them in the care of the commandant who were to march back to Montreal and serve out their parole, essentially giving them surrender with full honors. The English expedition then systematically destroyed every part of the fort down to the brick foundation of the buildings, before leaving a few days later. The expedition that was attacking Fort Duquesne was led by Brigadier General John Forbes. General Forbes was advised by his Virginia contingent of Colonel Washington and Byrd that if he wished to make it to Fort Duquesne by 1758, that he would have to rebuild Braddock's Road. But the expedition was building the road out of Pennsylvania, and they were still hundreds of miles away from Fort Duquesne, because Forbes was convinced that the Virginia contingent had preferred Braddock's road due to their interest in land speculation, saying they showed their weakness and their attachment to their province they belonged to. He had studied Braddock's failed expedition and decided the best strategy was to be a slow march towards Fort Duquesne. He'd come to this conclusion for two reasons. First, 
By building a road as they advance, they would be able to keep their force fully supplied. Second, building a road would take some time, which would mean that they would be mounting their attack hopefully after the other expeditions had completely isolated Fort Duquesne. And he was right. After Fort Frontenac was destroyed, diplomacy with the Ohio Valley natives became much easier. Seeing that the French were likely to lose the war, the native nations began trying to play both sides diplomatically. In October, the Treaty of Easton would re-establish the Iroquois' dominance over the Ohio Valley nations, including the Delaware. The Onondaga would receive the English's promise not to make permanent settlements in the Ohio Valley, and other smaller nations of the Ohio Valley would receive extensions of peace from England, preventing them from being pillaged by the massive expeditions currently in North America. With the natives all but taken off the battlefield in the Ohio Valley, this left Fort Duquesne completely isolated. They could expect no aid from Canada because Fort Frontenac had been destroyed, and they could expect no aid from their once native allies. In November, the advanced guard of the expedition approached the region around Fort Duquesne. The French commandant took stock of the situation. He decided his only action was to burn down the fort, and so they buried 50 barrels of gunpowder underneath the fort, and then set fire to the buildings. Watching from a distance in their canoes, they would see the fort explode into rubble, even 10 miles away, the English could hear the explosion of the 50 barrels of gunpowder. General Forbes had managed to take Fort Duquesne without firing a gunshot. Little did the French know that the general's militia was on terms of service that were ending a week from them and were already beginning to return home. General Forbes himself was struck with some sort of intestinal ailment. He would be transported back to Philadelphia where he would have a few days to set his affairs in order before passing away. In Philadelphia, General Forbes would be given a state funeral, and the road he so meticulously built that summer would become known as Forbes Road, a road which settlers would use to travel from Philadelphia to the Ohio Valley for generations. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating. And share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.